Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution, our 100th episode. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm joined for the 100th time by Professor Akhil Amar. Welcome, Akhil, and congratulations. Right back at you. Well, what a ride it's been. You know, we, we uploaded our first podcast on the day of President Biden's inauguration, and since then, you know, we've embraced a, a variety of ways of exploring America's constitutional ecosystem. We've had fantastic guests from both sides of the ideological spectrum, and we've recorded live podcasts in Florida, Alabama, and recently at Yale. Um, we've offered the voices of the Supreme Court justices and the advocates that appear before them, and we've analyzed their arguments. We've looked at our country's distant past, it's a stormy present, and we offered reforms for its future. Um, we've paid tribute to great scholars, to mentors, to historical figures, and we've honored those of our present. And best of all, we've given birth to and watched the growth of our community, our audience. You've tuned in, in many cases, week after week, sometimes again and again, you tell us, and we hope you've been challenged, stimulated, and inspired. You know, we hear from you in, our, in your emails, in your questions, in your social media posts, and we hear you when we see our audience grow, because we know that you, our current audience, are the main driver of our growing audience. So thank you, and we hope you continue to join us for the journey ahead. And, of course, it's been a lot of fun, Andy, for, for you and me. A hundred episodes, each episode by my reckoning, is about 100 minutes. That's 10,000 minutes, right? Yep, that's true. Yeah, 150 hours or more of, uh, of Akhil Amar archived <laughs> forever, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, I think for better. And, uh, but you're right, it's been, it's been tremendous fun. You know, for, somebody wrote to me, uh, one, of, one of our audience members wrote and said that, uh, that I was living his dream. By, by getting to, uh, you know, learn so much from, from this great scholar and, and in my case, you know, a great friend. So, you know, thank you for, for this great experience, Akil. Well, and Andy, as I always remind our audience, you do all the work. So, you know, this, is, this podcast grew out of um, conversations that Andy and I would have, you know, every day, basically. And at a certain point, I, we just decided hey, let's um, uh, turn on the tape recorder. Yep. And we have big plans for the future, too. You know, we, we've teased some of our, our forthcoming guests, uh, for example, most prominently, you know, the newly retired Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, among many others. And uh, we've been invited to, you know, numerous organizations' meetings to record more live podcasts. We're going to continue to do that from time to time. And we hope to attend the oral arguments at the Supreme Court in uh, Moore versus Harper. And we look forward to reporting to you uh, following that big day. And today, we're going to start trying something new, um, video. So we've opened an America's Constitution Instagram account, and a TikTok account is coming as well. And we're going to post uh, selected clips from this week's episode uh, on that site over the next couple of days. So we'll try this from time to time in the near future, and we'll see what kind of response it generates from our community. You know, our, our hope is not that the clips will be a substitute for our in-depth discussions, 
uh, that are the heart of what we're doing. And let me just be clear, you know, this is not going to be an hour and a half of talking heads. You know, uh, it's going to be just a few clips, almost like a teaser, you know. Um, and, you know, we hope that it's, that it's a tasty treat, you know, that interests new listeners in, in eating the whole meal. So, you know, please follow the account. It's America's Constitution uh, with an underscore in between the two words, as is typical for Instagram, no apostrophe. So America's underscore Constitution. So please follow it and share it around. Um, and, you know, we, we think that uh, it'll be fun. So, all right, as I said, Akil, it's, it's a great honor to, to have spent these sessions with you. And I'm, I'm proud that we have an archive now of constitutional discussion, exploration, and education, you know, for all Americans to consult forever. So thank you again. And, and thank you. And since actually, I guess we're, we're doing video now at a certain point, I'm going to need to get a haircut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Indeed. So now to the episode where we're joined once again by... Professor Stephen Calabresi, as promised. Welcome, Steve. Hey. Thank you. So we we had promised that we were going to bring Steve back, but then we saw how popular the episode was, and we made, of course, 100% sure of it. Um, and it's no small feat because it's been, you know, quite a week uh, and weekend for these two. Uh, last weekend was the uh, National uh, Lawyers Convention of the Federalist Society, and, and it marked the 40th anniversary of that organization. So it was a big shindig, as we mentioned on our last podcast, um, down in down in Washington. And and both of these gentlemen had, had prominent roles, to say the least. Um, before we get into it, I, I want to uh, point out that um, Steve is here speaking for himself. Maybe he'll speak for Akil, I don't know. But, but um, And he's not here speaking for the Federalist Society, though certainly... He may speak about the Federalist Society, and we, and that was true uh, last time as well. And you know, we just want to make that clear because there was some uh, news items about that where one might, uh, although you know, didn't really say, oh, he he claimed to be speaking for the Federalist Society or something like that. Uh, On the contrary, he right. always is clear as he was actually two weeks ago, that he never speaks for the Federalist Society as such, and that different members and affiliates of the society sometimes have different views on things. Uh, absolutely. I never speak for the Federalist Society. And the society takes no positions on cases, on legislation, on issues, or anything else. It just ex- encourages debate and discussion. And that's what he actually said several times um, in our uh, last episode with Steve, and even fact, before he- the, the journalistic tension, that our friend, Nina Totenberg, who is going to be coming on the podcast, actually, in future weeks, uh, generated by talking to Steve, actually, about the ISL brief that Steve and I and Vic put together. So there was a little bit of a, of a discussion about all this, but Steve has always been crystal clear about that. Well, I would go a step further, Akil. In fact, he corrected you. Yes. Because when it came to the question of judges, yes. um, you started talking about, you know, FedSoc judges or whatever, and and he made the point that the Federal Society does not actually directly uh, advise on it. Perhaps members of the Federal Society themselves may have opinions or may be in governmental or other positions where they can be advisory by virtue of their positions, not yes. by virtue of their membership in the Federalist Society. And, that, and, 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 and he I made that cor- point. So, so, yes. And so, I stood corrected. And I actually said, let me correct the record on that. 
Right. So I'm no I'm no tool here or anything like that. I'm not <laughs> I've no I'm not a fellow society member or anything like that. Perhaps you are I'm, not now, nor have you ever right. been. <laughs> Perhaps I might be a, at any rate. I, I I think it's very important that we be, you know, crystal clear on that. And not just because of uh, of this kerfluffle, but because it's it's just it's wrong. So so I, I want to be clear about it because we're about the facts. Just like last week, we in our first episode on affirmative action, you know, we yep. were correcting, you know, both or, or at least if not correcting, at least uh, giving our own clarification on when, when we thought one side or the other was uh, taking it a little bit too far. So why not, you know, be consistent in that matter? Okay, so back to and, and, and since actually Andy Steve did talk about how. The Federalist Society, which he co-founded, grew out of, in part, his experience with the Yale Political Union, which is a debating society of sorts, and his involvement with various parties in the political union, including his great friendship with folks in the party of the right. My first week at Yale College, it's my 18th, I arrive here on my 18th birthday. My first week, I go to YPU meeting, and I hear the each of the parties makes this presentation. I still remember Rick Brookheiser, who was then the chair of the Party of the Right, remind everyone that membership in the Party of the Right was for life at least. Well, that reminds me of a line from uh, a James Bond movie, License to Kill, one of the two <laughs> Timothy Dalton movies. Uh-huh. Uh, where he's uh, he's uh, the, the the villain is a drug lord played by Robert Davi and so Robert Davi is meeting with the president of the Banana Republic that's being you know portrayed there and the guy and he says you know you were very quiet when I was when I was arrested he said remember you're only president for life <laughs> Great. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, 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 what were your impressions of uh, of the of the celebration of the of the uh, convention, Steve? So, I I had a tremendous amount of fun. Um, it was a great anniversary. Um, I got to see my good friend Tom Bell, who was one of the five students who co-founded the Yale chapter with me. For the first time in maybe 15 or 20 years, Tom and I got together with Gary Lawson for dinner. Afterwards, Gary was one of the five also, so we had three of the five five of us who started the Yale chapter there. Uh, there were lots and lots of other old friends from different phases of life, from the Mies Justice Department, uh, from past administrations, former students of mine from Yale and Northwestern and Brown. There were one thing that was tremendous fun was the banquet that we had on Thursday night, which was held in Union Station. Uh, it's a black tie affair, so it requires a little bit of extra investment in dragging your tuxedo along. But as a result, it's very elegant and very fun. We had 2,200 people fill up Union Station. Everyone was in a boisterous mood and really joyful. And uh, the banquet program was a celebration of the 40th anniversary. And uh, it essentially began with uh, a panel of me talking about the founding of the Yale chapter, Lee Liberman Otis and David McIntosh talking about the founding of the University of Chicago chapter, and former U.S. Senator and Cabinet Secretary Spence Abraham talking about the founding of the uh, of the Harvard chapter. 
and um, we I had a chance to explain to the audience why we picked the name Federal Society. Uh, I said that uh, I had picked it together with Tom Bell for three reasons. First, because it uh, reflected I, it echoed the Federalist Papers, which I've long admired as the greatest work of political philosophy ever written by Americans. Second, because the Federalist Party of George Washington and John Adams was the party of the Constitution. And Alexander Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> was the party of the Constitution, and we saw see ourselves as advocates of the Constitution and protectors of the Constitution. And third, because Federalist uh, embodies the idea of federalism, which along with the separation of powers is something I'm committed to because I believe very firmly that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I like federalism and I like the separation of powers and I like checks and balances. Uh, the dinner then uh, probably became more interesting for folks when Justice Samuel Alito gave a talk. Uh, Justice Alito told a very funny story about how he had attended one of our meetings in um, our early days in the about 1985 when the uh, D.C. chapter lawyers division of the Federal Society used to meet in Tony Chang's Chinese restaurant a few blocks away from Union Station. And he said, you have to understand this was a fairly uh, – not a very glamorous restaurant or a very glamorous location. And I came to it to hear Attorney General Meese give his second major speech on originalism. And Chief Justice Alito said, uh, at the time I was working as a career lawyer in the Solicitor General's office, which was headed up by Charles Freed, a former Harvard Law School professor. And Freed uh, regarded the Federalist Society as a little outre or avant-garde. And San Justice Alito said that when Solicitor General Charles Freed first saw him, he said, Sam, Sam, why, why, what are you doing here? Why, why, this is so embarrassing. It's like meeting a good friend in a bordello. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sam said, not having been in a bordello before, I naturally didn't know the experience that Charles was describing. <laughs> you know, but that conveyed, Sam said, Charles by that was conveying the sense to which the Federal Society at that time was a little bit beyond the pale mm. for a respectable Harvard Law professor like Charles Freed. Sam then ended the speech by saying that as it happened, he had saved a fortune cookie from Tony Chen's restaurant from those days, and that he would open the fortune cookie upon the occasion of our 40th anniversary. He opened the fortune, and I don't remember exactly what it said, but it it was very positive. It forecast many good things in years ahead of us and uh, lots to be happy about. And then after Justice Alito's speech at the banquet, Justice Barrett spoke. And uh, when she heard, got a uh, standing ovation and rounds of applause, she said, I'm so glad to hear all of that noise and to know that it's in praise of me, not coming from hecklers outside my house. Mm. Uh, so uh, that was very uplifting and very fun. 
In general, I'd say that the atmosphere in the hallways of the convention on Thursday morning and Thursday afternoon and Friday morning and Friday afternoon was very upbeat. I see, actually, hang on. Before you talk about all that, were those the only two justices that were there? I, I actually did not bring my tux, and so even though it was black tie optional, I just um, stayed in my hotel uh, that evening. I, yes. I think I heard there, the, the, Ray find that there was um, there were some other attendees. There were other attendees as well. Uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch attended, and let's see um, – Justice Kavanaugh also attended, and uh, I saw Justice Kavanaugh, didn't have a chance to talk to him. I didn't see Justice Gorsuch, but uh, saw, of course, Justices Alito and Barrett on stage. Uh, But their presence just added to the happiness of the occasion, and I should say that both Alito and Barrett were given thunderous standing ovations, both when they got on stage and when they left the stage, and at one point during Justice Alito's speech. And uh, so it was a very warm homecoming for for people. Uh, so, so I first, just I first met Sam Alito back at that Mongol that Chinese restaurant some some thirty-five or years ago or so. So I've known him for a very long time also. So it's just really nice to be among friends. I'm so sorry. no 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 I, I was interrupting you. My apologies, Steve. So I want you to come and tell us a little bit more about the convention and you know our audience should know I, I was there and we'll talk about that that as well. But especially if you put this uh, week's episode alongside what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this began as just a student organization, you know, um, uh, sponsoring an event for fellow students who came kind of with sleeping bags, students' apartments to to save uh, money so they wouldn't have to check into local hotels. That's how it started way back when. And now this was a sold-out event at the 40th anniversary at the Mayflower Hotel and the Union Station and four sitting justices and, and and just in case anyone you know it misses the point five is a majority okay five is a quorum william brennan famously said or bill douglas like with five you can do anything four justices of the united states supreme court are showing up at this event and it didn't begin as an organization that was all about Washington insiders and, uh, and national lawyers conventions and big donors and high statecraft. That's actually not quite how it began. And it began as a law school version of the Yale Political Union of, of a certain sort. And that's, that's why I want our audience to put together what you heard two weeks ago with what, what Steve is now reporting. It's, it's very interesting to put the two together side by side. Yeah, we had no idea when we started the law school chapters that there would ever be a lawyer's division. What happened is we graduated from law school and we were still having fun sponsoring debates. So we started a young lawyers division. And now I'm 64 years old and the, you know, everyone following me has joined lawyers divisions or student divisions as well. But we had no idea that that would happen at the time we started our, our chapter. We at most hope to have a chapter at a couple of schools, but we never dreamt of anything like uh, last Thursday night. So last Thursday night was just great fun because it was a chance to be with friends and people, some of whom I haven't seen in 40 years or 35 or 25 years. And everybody was joyful and happy and in a celebratory mood. And I should note they were in a celebratory mood, even though the Republican Party had done not terribly well in Tuesday's elections. 
But people didn't care about that. They were just happy to see their friends and happy to celebrate our 40th anniversary. And uh, the rest of the conference was very much upbeat. I'd be happy to talk about any of the panels or things. I should say that after the banquet, the star event of the conference was the debate between Akil here and Professor John Yu of Berkeley, who wrote the torture memos during the George W. Bush administration, it should be noted. And they debated the independent state legislature theory, which we address in our amicus brief to the Supreme Court. And in my opinion, it was one of the most lively and spirited debates I've ever seen at the Federalist Society. And also, in my opinion, Akil trounced John Yu in that debate. My good friend Gary Lawson came up to me afterwards with a stunned look on his face saying, I came in here dead sure you were wrong, and now I think that this is an easy case and that you're right. <laughs> so uh, kudos to Akil. He went over Gary Lawson in the course of this, and I'm sure many other people as well. Well, I think that uh, the, those of uh, it doesn't surprise me that Akil, Akil would have done a good job in the debate. And, of course, I, I watched it as uh, – mentioned in our last episode um and uh i certainly agree with that assessment but um of course you are were involved with writing the brief as was akil i've had some you know some interest in the brief myself and um all of us are interested in that not because we were looking forward to winning a debate against john Yu, but rather because we think it's important for the country that the case come Absolutely. out come out right now having said that um, do you think that this was a, uh, a sort of a fair and comprehensive view of airing of the issues in the case? And do you feel that this crowd, which is, after all, you know, a conservative crowd as a whole, um, shared Gary Lawson's view as mostly? In other words, if you were looking at this as sort of a forecast for how persuasive the arguments in, um, that have been put forth t- uh, turned out to be before a potentially hostile audience, what would your I, assessment be? My, my assessment, and I am a bit of a politician, I was elected president of the Yale Political Union in 1978, and I've been in national politics since the Reagan years. But I would say that most of the people in the room came into the debate believing in the independent legislature theory, and they left either thinking Akil was thinking the theory was wrong and that Akil was right, or at least very uncertain about what they had previously thought. I think uh, Akil really um, swayed the room, and the fact that John kept repeating the same arguments and not responding to Akil uh, was, over time, fairly devastating to John. And John is good friends with Nick Rosencrantz, who moderated the debate, and both of them fled the stage immediately afterwards when I came up to greet them. I had a question, actually, I wanted to ask during the debate, which I didn't get to ask. So may I ask the question now, even though... Please, uh, go for it. ...he wasn't here. My question is... And, uh, and just to remind everyone, there was the debate, and then there were questions from the floor, and Steve was in line to ask a question, but uh, we, we, we ran out of time. But just be- before Steve asks the question that he would have asked... Um, uh, had there had there been time since people have said nice things about my performance truthfully i'm not sure i did such a great job but 
here's what I did do. I try, I urged everyone in attendance to read the brief. And listen um, to the podcast. And, um, and, and listen to the podcast, of course, but especially to read the brief because uh, the challenge for an amicus brief is to get read. The, the clerks and the justices have to read the party briefs. There were 50 amicus briefs or so filed in this case. They don't have to read the amicus briefs. Of course, in trying to reach members of the Federal Society, I'm hoping actually that filters and percolates to a broader network that involves Supreme Court clerks and Supreme Court justices, as, as you've just heard. And what I said at the very beginning is, I said, I'm not sure I'm going to win this debate because John Yu is is more articulate and, and younger and, and better looking and, and funnier. But if you actually read what he's written on this, he wrote a piece with my friend Cy Prakash and, and John Yu was my friend too. They were both my students. If you read what they wrote and if you read the brief, I think you'll be persuaded by the brief. And I said, I think you're going to be persuaded by the brief not just because it has all the arguments and we can only do a few of them in the debate, but because the brief represents not just me, but Steve Calabresi's input. And I went out of my way to say, and he doesn't speak for the Federal Society, but he does speak for Steve Calabresi. And you want to read the brief for that reason alone and Vicamar's ideas. And so my main goal was actually not to win the debate, whatever that means then and there, but to get people to read the brief. And Andy, a whole bunch of people had read it already because of the podcast. A lot of the folks whom I met at the event are America's constitution groupies. Um, and because actually they're very interested in you, Andy, I get, I got asked 50 questions. Yeah, what, you know, why the um, hell are you doing a podcast? Uh, with uh, that uh, guy? <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of, about, about Andy. And, and the second thing I want to say is to the extent that I didn't lose the crowd that I actually, I think resonated pretty well. Some of it is I've been around. Uh, um, these are people that I've known for 40 years, too. Some of them are, are not just Steve's friends, but but my friends, because I've tried to, you know, um, be in conversation with the Federal Society um, over the entirety of its existence. But, Andy, big shout out to you, because you told me at the very beginning, approach it with a certain sense of humor, you know, um, work the crowd a little bit, smile a bit. Andy, and I, you gave me very, very good advice that I tried to follow the audience, our podcast audience. You can observe it for yourself. It's on YouTube. It's on streaming video. Um, and, and you can just see it for yourself and judge it for yourself. Now, Steve is about to tell you the question that he would have asked, which I have not heard m myself. But thanks for your kind uh, comments on the, the, the debate. My own view was not that I trounced anyone or, or, or changed all sorts of minds. My own view was I got through it. Did totally embarrass myself, even though Andy wasn't, you know, at my side guiding me through, and Steve wasn't at my side helping me with the brief, and Vic wasn't at my side helping me with the brief. All three of you guys, in effect, were in my ear and in my head, you know, helping me to to prepare for the thing. You, um, Andy, and you, Steve, and Vic, out there uh, as well. Well, and you really did trounce him, Akil. I, you, you, I can recognize that it would be hard to realize that when you're in the middle of the debate yourself, but as an observer of debates and many, many federal society debates and panels, uh, I thought you clearly won. And you did add humor, and actually one of the points of humor is that you repeatedly, when you referred to me and my role in the brief, said, and Steve Calabresi, who does not speak for the Federal Society, and Steve Calabresi, who does not speak for the Federal Society, and Steve Calabresi, who does not speak for the Federal Society, you drove home the point that I really do not speak for the Federalist Society. And it became 
comical and elicited laughter and was much appreciated by me and I'm sure much appreciated by Gene Meyer and Lee Liberman Otis and other people who do run the Federal Society. But now tell us what question you were going to ask. So uh, John Yu was saying, under the independent state legislature theory, there's nothing to prevent an independent state legislature from going off and doing something really crazy. Under your theory, there's nothing to prevent a state from going off and doing something really crazy. A state could, for example, uh, vest the power to redistrict in one person. Uh, it could vest the power to redistrict in uh, a few people not subject to re-election. The only check on state power that Akil and Vic and Steve's brief offers is Article 4, Section 4, which says the United States shall guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. And then John New said, Republican form of government, that's really vague stuff. The Supreme Court has almost always said those cases raise political questions and that they're not justiciable. So if, if that's all we have to protect us, that's practically nothing. Well, actually, John Yu was wrong about that. There are a number of things that are not a Republican form of government. A monarchy or a dictatorship is not a Republican form of government. If the voters vest redistricting power in one person who is holds an office that's hereditary, that's a violation of the Guarantee Clause. An oligarchy or an aristocracy is not uh, a Republican form of government, nor is a theocracy. If the voters give the redistricting power to a commission and the commissioners then pick their successors in perpetuity, that might be a violation of the Guarantee Clause. Uh, mob rule is not a viol- is not a Republican form of government. Uh, if the voters allow redistricting according to people chosen randomly by lot uh, in one part of the state, that might be uh, sufficiently arbitrary to be a problem. But essentially what John Yu said is the Supreme, he said the Supreme Court has never, ever, ever, not once said anything was a, not a Republican form of government. Well, actually, John Yu was wrong. There's a very important case called Texas against White decided in 1869 where the Reconstruction government of Texas sued to recover some bonds that had been sold by the secessionist state legislature of Texas. And the Supreme Court took jurisdiction over the case and decided it on the merits. And what the Supreme Court said was that Congress had power under the Republican form of government clause to do reconstruction of the South after the Civil War, which went on for 11 years. That is a really major thing in American history, and it was an exercise of power under the Guarantee Clause. And the Supreme Court, reaching the merits, not saying jurisdiction, reaching the merits, the Supreme Court said yes. The state governments under slavery were not Republican in form when they were rebelling against the Union. The secessionist government had no right to sell Texas's bonds. The Reconstruction government is the true government of Texas. Texas never seceded from the Union. Secession is unconstitutional. And the the Reconstruction government of Texas is therefore entitled to the bonds that it is suing to get. That's a ruling on the merits 
affirmed by the Supreme Court on the merits, and it is an example of the Supreme Court enforcing the guarantee clause on the merits and not deeming something a political question. Now, you could say, well, that's only one case in 232 years of American history, but how often would you expect the states to violate the Republican form of government clause? Uh, probably not that much. So that's one very major instance, and John, you just didn't have an answer for that. Well, I think it also was relevant to the ratification questions regarding the uh, 14th Amendment, that states that had, you know, that did not yet have Republican form of government didn't get to, you know, didn't have to ratify um, the, the, in order to reach the uh, requisite three quarters of the states. So that's another one. So, Absolutely. But anyway, that well, you didn't ask the question of me. So I didn't ask. The, I didn't ask the question of uh, John. You, Akil, what do you think about the significance of Texas against White and about the guarantee clause as a, as a check? on states abusing their power under our theory. The most important response that I tried to make to John is that we originalists, uh, we departmentalists, believe that the Constitution applies whether or not there's a court case. Correct. We, t- we originalists understand that everyone who wields government power takes an oath to the Constitution itself that binds the president that binds House members, that binds senator, Senate members, that binds state government officials. So even if it were the case that there were never a Supreme Court opinion on a part of the Constitution, it would still be a part of the Constitution. And then I further reminded the audience that there were there are parts of the Constitution that for a long time judges ignored, but they have always been parts of the Constitution. And I remind them of the Second Amendment, which when Steve and I come on the scene as young law professors had not been really taken seriously by the United States Supreme Court, but is today in a series of opinions, Heller, McDonald and and Bruin and Steve and I are actually both cited in McDonald, for for example. Mm -hmm. And I begun my presentation by reminding the audience that, you know, sometimes I take positions that are politically conservative because I think they're the correct originalist position. And I had reminded them of the Second Amendment. There was a time when Steve and I are beginning law school, judges didn't take the Tenth Amendment very seriously. But it still always was part of the Constitution, and now they talk about it much more. The privileges or immunities clause of the Fourteenth Amendment isn't taken very seriously by judges today, but Steve and I hope one day it will be. What I did do is play in the lingo, a departmentalist card and an originalist card, which are cards that members of the Federalist Society really do recognize. And Steve may be more than most because much of his scholarship is about the executive branch and not all aspects of executive branch conduct actually um, get litigated. Much much of the foreign affairs work that the president does is of a, a sort that it can't come before the courts for judicial review. And the courts have essentially stayed away from foreign affairs and war powers questions and have tended to treat them essentially as political questions, although not calling them such. And and then another thing, a major, perhaps the most, one of the most important things the federal government does is it spends money to promote the general welfare, but taxpayers don't have standing to sue over whether money is being properly spent or not. So the spending clause is enforced entirely by Congress and by the president, 
and not at all by the courts. But just to get back to John Yu, he was actually wrong. There was one big case that he'd overlooked enforcing the guarantee clause. But Akhil is right. Even if there weren't a case, the fact that presidents and senates have enforced the guarantee clause says it all right there. There was a civil war in my home state of Rhode Island in 1841 and 1842. And for a while, there were two governments of the state of Rhode Island. And President John Tyler, acting under one of the militia acts passed in the 1790s, recognized one government as the legitimate government of Rhode Island, the charter government, and disavowed the other. And then he encouraged that charter government to reform its constitution to allow universal male suffrage, which it did. And that put an end to an episode that's called Doors Rebellion in Rhode Island. So there, President Tyler was the person who guaranteed to Rhode Island a Republican form of government. Seven years later, a case made its way about the legality of Doors Rebellion to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, called Luther v. Borden. And Justice Roger B. Taney of Dred Scott Infamy wrote the opinion in Luther v. Borden. He said, this is a political question. It was handled properly by President Tyler. And that's right, because by the time the case had reached the Supreme Court, uh, Rhode Island had elected congressmen, it elected senators, it had passed laws. Everyone realized what the government of Rhode Island was. So President Tyler assaulted in that case. And that's why Luther v. Borden was a political question. But Texas v. White raised an issue that Congress wasn't addressing, and so it appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled for for the Reconstruction government of Texas. But I think Akil should actually talk a little bit to the audience about John Hughes' argument that the word, the best defense of the independent state legislature theory is that if you ask a person on the street what the state legislature is, They'll say the state Senate or the state House of Representatives. And Akhil made what I think is a very, very, very important argument that words in the Constitution sometimes mean one thing in one place and something different in another place. So I'll let Akhil maybe explain that. Yeah, and we've done that in our previous episodes, but and 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 um given that some parts of the brief especially came from Steve, and I want to, uh Andy S to talk a little bit about Calder versus Bull in just a minute, because this is that was the answer to one of John Hughes' set of questions. But um, another part of the brief that that really I'm not as responsible for, but Vic is makes this following utterly beautiful point, and this is Vic's point. That's why I wanted people to read the brief. I didn't want the um, it to rise or fall on on my paltry uh, debating skills. In the brief, Vic says, "Take the word Congress." It's basically a reference to the federal legislature. Sometimes Congress means the House and Senate, the folks who meet up on Capitol Hill. Um, The president shall from time to time give Congress information on the State of the Union. Well, he's giving information to the House and the Senate on Capitol Hill. But sometimes the Constitution says that when it says the word Congress means the House and Senate and the president as part of the lawmaking system, like in a clause in Article 4 and this can be relevant in a minute, it says Congress admits new states and Congress regulates the territories. It doesn't say by law, but 
It's implied by law, mm-hmm. and the bylaw includes the president. And even though the presentment clause of the Constitution that says, oh, congressional bills have to be presented to a president, that's in Article 1. Article 4 doesn't say that, but it's best read as meaning that. And here's the point, that from the beginning, laws regulating the territories were presented to the president, to George Washington. The Northwest Ordinance was one of the first 10 statutes ever passed. Laws admitting new states. Um, and again, this is a power vested in, quote, Congress, were presented to the president. And, and, that, and at the beginning, George Washington. And in fact, three different early state constitutions from three new states, Vermont, Kentucky, Tennessee, all three of them adopted new constitutions that actually regulated state legislatures, which weren't quite so independent. These new state constitutions, they not only had to be adopted in the relevant states, Kentucky, Vermont, Tennessee, they had to be approved in effect by Congress when these, when Congress admitted them as new states and wait for it. That Congress included George Washington, the president, who in effect then vouched for these state constitutions, which were anti-ISL constitutions. So Vic's point is, oh, sometimes Congress means House and Senate, the legislature as an entity. You know, sometimes it means the lawmaking system that's House and Senate and the president. And if that's true for Congress uh, under the Constitution, it's also true for a state legislature. Sometimes, for example, when state legislatures are given the power to pick senators prior to the 17th Amendment, that's just the, the state um, entity, the, the state assembly and the state senate. But when Congress, excuse me, when state legislatures are given power to pass laws regulating congressional elections and presidential elections, oh, legislature means something different. It includes the governor. If he has a veto pen and if it includes the governor, if he has a veto pen, why not all the other rules that the state constitution uh, provides for and might change from time to time over time, consistent with the Republican guarantee clause about how the legislative power of a given state should be configured or reconfigured. Idea in the brief with the word Congress. Steve has a different and related idea in the brief about the particular role of state judges um, in a case called um, Calder versus Bullitt. I'm going to let him make that point in just a minute. But Andy, you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, this point, just to finish this point about Congress, the word Congress, I mean, the word Congress appears in Article One, Section 4, the very section yes. um, where the ISL, uh, you know, question, and it says that Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. Now, presumably, they would have to present that to, to the, the president. president. Absolutely. So in that would. case, Congress Absolutely. includes the president in the very sentence. In, in the that, very sentence that's the issue in this case. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. And there are other examples. I, I, and hang on. One reason I did emphasize that is because I could see people say, oh, but it says by law right. there. And it doesn't right. say the legislation. But, but that's why I used Article 4, because it right. doesn't say by law. And yet. George Washington, that's George freaking Washington uh, for my audience members, was involved in admitting new states from day one and regulating territories from day one. In Article 4, which to repeat, does not use the word, does use the word Congress, does not use the words by law, and is in a different part of the Constitution from 
um, the place where the presentment clause that actually mentions the president by name appears, which is Article 1, Article 1, Section 7. And one of the things that Congress and the president do when a new state is admitted to the union is they look at the state new state's proposed constitution and in admitting them to the union, they certify that the new, newly proposed state constitution is a Republican form of government. Yes. And so the new state admissions clause is a way in which the guarantee power clause power comes to bear uh, in, in the state admissions process. And to repeat, the first three new states admitted all had anti-ISL constitutions that told state legislatures what to do and not do when it came to congressional elections. And those constitutions were, as Steve just said, not just approved in each of those three new states, but basically blessed by early Congresses populated with members who, um, who had been involved in the Constitution's uh, framing and ratification, and also blessed by George Washington, who was, of course, uh, not just the father of the country, but in my view, the father of the Constitution. There are other words that mean different things in different places in the Constitution that Vakil pointed out. The word person includes corporations in the due process clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, and corporations have First Amendment free speech rights, but corporations don't count as persons in terms of the census, and corporations are not persons who can become citizens and have the right to vote. Yeah, so, one person, one vote doesn't include One person, one vote doesn't include corporations. So persons and corp... The word persons means different things in different places, too. But, Steve, um, a, another question that John Yu asked was, he said, well, um, on your view... Um, a state constitution could um, give the power over congressional elections to a court. Oh, my gosh. And I should have said, but I didn't quite. Yeah. And actually, that was true from day one, because judges were involved in a New York Council of Revision in 1789. But what I did say. Yes. And the person that pointed out to you that you should have said that was me. I know, I know. And Andy, you know, you weren't there. Like, you know, I, sh- I should have had like, you know, you in my ear, literally, you know, uh, uh, telling me what to do. Um, but but I didn't. So that, and that's why I told people at the beginning, don't rely just on on my paltry debating skills. Read the brief because I promise you that point is made in the brief. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, and you would would have reminded it, uh, reminded me of it, but but I actually did put it in the brief that, that for you to remind me of it. But we didn't have did, our hand signals ready. I did not. But what I did say is, oh, there's this case. It's mentioned a couple of times in the brief, and it's a case about actually how states are allowed to give all sorts of power to state courts to combine legislative and judicial power. The state. Uh, Supreme Court can also be its state legislature or vice versa. The case is Calder versus Bull. I told the audience it's mentioned twice in the brief. And I also mentioned to the audience, the, the debate audience, that that um, idea of Calder versus Bull was uh, a really important contribution by my uh, co-author, Steve Calabresi, who does not speak for the Federalist Society. <laughs> so uh, tell them about Calder. Calder versus Bull was decided in 1798, uh, in other words, very early in our constitutional history. 
Justice Patterson, who sat on the case and wrote an opinion, was a delegate to the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention. The issue in Calder versus Bull was whether the Connecticut State Legislature, in addition to passing laws, could sit as the highest court in the colony, the way the House of Lords in Britain used to be the highest court in uh, the United Kingdom. And um, the three of the four justices, four justices wrote opinions. At the time, it was common for there to be seriatim opinions, as they're called, rather than one majority opinion, as happened after John Marshall became chief justice. And three of these four seriatim opinions specifically say that if the issue in this case is, is it permissible for Connecticut to make its state legislature the highest court in the land the way that in Britain the House of Lords is the highest court of the land, that is permissible. That is not a violation of the Republican Guarantee of Government Clause. Uh, in other words, uh, that's something a state can do. So even the separation of powers is not technically required at the state level. The states could, if they wanted to, have two branches of government, the governor and the legislature. And this is because in England until 1701, there were only two powers of government. There was parliament, which had the power of the purse, and there was the king who had the power of the sword. And judges worked for the king and could be fired by the king, and they weren't an independent branch. Um, and decisions of judges could be appealed to the House of Lords, which was part of Parliament and which could overrule what the king's judges had said. So that was the British system, which Calder versus Bull said the state of Connecticut was free to imitate if it wanted to. Now, if if there's that much innovation by state constitutions is allowed, then I think presumably all sorts of things are allowed. Um Initiatives and referenda are allowed, as the Supreme Court held in 1912. That's consistent with a Republican form of of government. Uh, legislatures can be either unicameral, as in Nebraska, or bicameral, as in the 49 other states. Governors can have no veto at all, as was the case in 11 of the 13 colonies prior to the writing of the Constitution, 11 states. Uh, or governors can have not only a veto, but even a line-item veto. And in fact, 39 governors, I think, have line-item vetoes today, which is a much more powerful veto power than the President of the United States possesses. I think a state could experiment with a parliamentary form of government if it wanted to. I don't think the Constitution requires this separation of powers model. The things a state can't do are clear. They can't establish a dictatorship or a monarchy. They can't establish a theocracy. They can't establish an oligarchy or an aristocracy. They can't be any hereditary office holding of any kind at all. Um, there can't be a system of caste in place, and there can't be mob rule. Uh, and other than that, uh, the Republican form of government clause leaves the states very free to choose different forms of government as they wanted want uh, want to do. And that's federalism for you. I mean, that's that's what we care about in the federal society is federalism. And uh, in fact, the Constitution 
uh, gives the states a lot of latitude to pick institutions. In practice, the states have tended to follow the federal model and have moved toward the federal model since uh, our early history, but they're free to depart from it if they want to in significant ways. And I think I mentioned to the audience that if the United States Supreme Court were to decide all these issues for itself rather than leaving the issues to state constitutions that are allowed to structure and limit legislative power in various ways, state constitutions as typically construed definitively by state supreme courts. If the U.S. Supreme Court were try to try to take away that authority from state constitutions and state supreme courts, I told the audience this would be, in the words of our brief, a, quote, massive national power grab, unquote. And I think I told the audience that th- those words came directly from my friend Steve Calabresi, who does not speak for the Federalist Society. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, there's a certain irony to John Yu's challenge there that he's he's complaining that the state legislature might arrogate power by appointing some, you know, strange uh, configuration, when in fact the whole point about ISL is that the state legislature does not act freely of certain constraints like those of the state constitution. I mean, well, John, John is putting all faith in the state legislature's and in the Supreme Court, federal Supreme Court backing up the state legislatures, whereas Akil and I put our faith in state constitutions and in the Congresses and presidents that have approved state constitutions as being Republican in form. And uh, state, if state constitutions specify a gubernatorial veto and judicial review and reapportionment, then the framers of the state constitutions carry the day. And so it's actually John Yu who has the more flimsy uh, scheme in mind, which might be abused because uh, there certainly are partisan state houses of representatives and partisan senates, and there's even been partisanship on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, at, at times, arguably in Bush v. Gore, uh, so why so much better to diffuse it out among 50 states and let, let 50 state constitutions have the last word on this question rather than one federal Supreme Court? Which is why Steve used the phrase, which I kept in the brief, um, massive national power grab. Now, it was mentioned um, at the debate, well, what happens if state Supreme Courts get the a bit between their teeth and just make stuff up and, and, and run away with things? And I said... Well, you know, truthfully, that could happen at the U.S. Supreme Court as well. I know it's shocking to come contemplate Roe versus Wade or whatever else, that, that the Supreme Court could make stuff up. But here's the point, that when the Supreme, if the Supreme Court makes stuff up, the people of North Carolina don't have a lot of recourse. If North Carolina justices misbehave, they can be impeached in North Carolina, state legislative reprisals and state executive reprisals, um, checks and balances, ambition, checking ambition within North Carolina. They're subject to North Carolina processes. What we can be pretty sure of is these state uh, Supreme Court justices took the bar in North Carolina. 
They presumably know something about North Carolina. I think I may have even said there's no guarantee that any of the current Supreme Court justices has ever even set foot in the state of North Carolina, much less knows anything about it. So um, what federalism is all about is letting the people of North Carolina um, pick ultimately the, the jurists of, of North Carolina. And, and if they go too far, they can be sanctioned in North Carolinian ways. And quite ironically, I read in a story online that in last Tuesday's election, which instead of producing a red wave, produced a red puddle, um, I read that the one, the one of the few exceptions to that was that in North Carolina, three Republicans successfully won seats on the state Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the majority in the North Carolina Supreme Court, which overturned the state legislature's gerrymander, lost their positions in office in state elections, which may mean that the voters of North Carolina didn't like what those state Supreme Court judges had done. Mm-hmm. So state Supreme Courts are much more accountable than the U.S. Supreme Court certainly is. Now, How many um, state Supreme Courts uh, approximately are, are subject to election rather than appointment? I don't know the exact answer to that, but I think it's easily a majority. And, and especially when you understand that even states that have appointment often have things called retention elections. So there's a, there's a range from, in my view, the, the worst state court systems, truthfully, are competitive partisan judicial elections with lots of money sloshing around. That, that's what, truthfully, I like the least. In Rhode Island, actually, it's um, a process, there's actually life tenure. It's the only state, really, that has kind of a, a life tenure model. But most of the others have systems in between in which even if you don't initially get your position by election, uh, even if you're appointed to the position, typically a governor confirmed by part of the legislature, you might have to stand for what's called a retention election. You're not running in a competitive election opposed by a particular person, but it's like an up-down vote on you. And there's a whole range. And as our audience will know from previous episodes, most states have a term limits of some sort, either term limits or age limits, um, not Rhode Island, but almost all the other states. I want to mention all one the other states. Yeah. I want to mention one other thing because in previous episodes we've read, uh, Andy, you and I, and you were a little skeptical of this, but you indulged me. So thank you. We, we've read most of the brief to our audience. We sk- skipped some of the footnotes and, and we put the, the brief up for. Um, their inspection. But here's one thing that we never read. We never read the table of authorities. And, and I just want to read the table, uh, just just summarize the, the table of authorities at the beginning of the brief, because it, it's kind of funny, um, given what we've been talking about before. Here are the... the, the, the we're so, doing this because it's the fall and the grass isn't growing, so we have to substitute <laughs> for that. Okay, so we mentioned some, there, there are Supreme Court cases that we cite, and some constitutional provisions, and they're Lots of state constitutional provisions, you see. And, and John Yu and Sai Prakash actually, you know, didn't talk about all these early state constitutions. But the other authorities are basically there was one reference to the records of the Philadelphia Convention by a Yale scholar from the beginning of the 20th century named Max Fran. Yeah, which and was then, useful when it came time to the. Debunk the, the Pinckney plan. The Pinckney yeah. plan, exactly. Right. And then here are the other authorities. A, a book by a guy named Akil Riedemar, another book by a guy named Akil Riedemar, 
um, an article by a fellow named Vikram David Amar, another piece by Vikram David Amar, another piece by Vikram David Amar, another piece by Vikram David Amar and Akhil Reed Amar, and then Calabresi, Calabresi, Calabresi and Larson, Calabresi and Prakash, Calabresi and Rose, Calabresi and Christopher Yu, um, and then Gordon Wood. So those are our authorities, you know, Akhil, Vic, Steve, in alphabetical order. But then, of course, we end with Gordon freaking Wood, whom we've had on this podcast, whom Steve adores, whom I adore. He is an authority. That's what an authority looks like in our book. I so, I so admire Gordon Wood that when he moved out of his house and and gave all of his books to a used bookstore, I told the lady at the used bookstore just to box them and let me look through them and I figure out which ones I wanted to buy and which ones I want, didn't, wasn't interested in. And because he was a political scientist and I'm a constitutional law professor, there wasn't a complete overlap. But I think I ended up keeping about three quarters of his books, uh, and I'm very glad to have them. That would have been enough of a recommendation for me. You know, just give me the box. (laughs) Tell me how much I owe you. Um, Exactly. So, uh, of course, you know, we're talking about the brief, and during the debate, Akil mentioned the brief, you know, numerous times, like, um, oh, you know, read the brief, read the brief. And then when he was telling me about the – convention, one of the things that he was telling me was there were various uh, signs he considered hopeful signs that made it seem likely that the justices would read this brief. Now, you clerked for the Supreme Court, Steve. Yeah. Um, things vary over time, and there are some things you can't talk about, but I'm interested in uh, amicus briefs at the court. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what... Based on your experience, how would you evaluate the likelihood that the justices will read this particular brief? What are the factors that might go into it? I would think the likelihood would be quite high uh, that they would look at it. I think not only the justices, but also their law clerks would look at the briefs. Akil is a nationally renowned scholar. He is, I think, the second most cited law professor by the Supreme Court in the country, after only Michael McConnell. Akhil has written on a much wider range of issues than McConnell has. So I think anything signed by Akhil is very likely to be no- noticed. I am and, perhaps and co-signed by Steve, co-signed who by does Steve. not speak for the Federalist Society, <laughs> but... But um, I think the eighth most cited law professor by the Supreme Court in recent years. I think so. From what Akil so, told like me, something, yeah. something like that. So, and particularly and, and, given and, that, and Vic is not chopped liver. And, and I, I say particularly given that people think of me as generally leaning Republican and think of Akil as generally leaning Democratic, the fact we both agree on this will draw attention to it. So I, I think the chances of people reading the brief are really pretty high. And I do think if people read the brief and think the problem through, it's really quite clear that we're right. And my friend Gary Lawson is right. Not only are we right, this is an easy case that we're right. So, you know, in, in general, what sorts of, you, you've talked about the authority that each of you have, that you have uh, diversity of, of viewpoints, that you're both, that you're cited by the court a lot, which would suggest that they, they might want to, you know, read what you have to say if they intend to, to cite you um, or if they're considering citing you. Um, but for other amicus briefs, um, what would you say are the factors that go into whether a, a brief gets into read? whether 
I think it depends on the authors of the brief, either the persons or the organizations. You know, I think if they're major litigating or organizations like uh, the NAACP or uh, the ACLU or uh, other major national groups of that kind, the Chamber of Commerce, those briefs would get read. I think briefs written by prominent law professors like Larry Tribe or Michael Dorff would probably get read. Um, I think the briefs that don't get read are the ones where the person on the brief or the organization on the brief is not one that is familiar to the law clerks or to the judges. And I should offer the cautionary note that in some of the really big cases, there can be a, you know, a hundred amicus briefs. I mean, there can be a stack of amicus briefs that reaches to the ceiling and most of them won't get read. But I really think ours falls in the category where it is an amicus brief that will be read. And I very much hope it will be read because I think that the justices priors in going into this case might be that the independent state legislature theory is correct. And I think, for example, John Roberts wrote a dissent in the Arizona referendum case that suggested that. And so John Roberts would need to be persuaded. But I think John Roberts is persuadable. And I think if he reads, reads our amicus brief, he would be persuaded. And likewise with Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett and Alito and Gorsuch and Thomas, I would, would not write off any of them. I mean, Justice Thomas is very ardently protective of state power, and state power is being challenged here. The power of state constitutions is being challenged here. And Justice Thomas, to his great credit has changed his mind on issues over the years. Um, so I'm not ruling out, I, I don't think, I'm not counting on any of of of, of those, but um, I'm not ruling them out. Um, and because I do think we've got some strong arguments, a justice who's taken a different position, as John Roberts once did in the Arizona case, as Clarence Thomas did way back in Bush versus Gore, as Justices Gorsuch and Alito have done in, in various smaller memorandum op- opinions um, here and there in shadow docket cases and, and elsewhere. I count them all as in play, so to speak, because I don't think until this round the issues have been well briefed. And that that fact is really central to a piece that Vic wrote last week online and called um, uh, Gestia or, or Verdict, highlighting the really astonishing fact that, you know, there was almost no good briefing in Bush versus Gore academic briefing because things were happening way too quickly back in 2000. But in this Arizona case from 2015, none of the briefs were really great originalist briefs. Um, and this time around, there's a lot more originalist briefing, in part because of Dobbs and Bruin, in part because... There are justices now on the Supreme Court who see themselves as originalists, and I've referred to them in print as Federal Society judges and justices, um, but I want to be clear, and, and just uh, which is what we said two weeks ago, they weren't picked by the Federal Society as such, but they were endorsed by Federal Society uh, members and affiliates. And these guys see themselves as originalists. They've grown up in the Federalist Society as students, some of them. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. I think all three of them actually began their connection to the Federalist Society way before they even took the bar. And because the Federalist Society has stood 
for many years for principled originalism, I think they're open to hearing about principled originalism. That's what they pushed in Dobbs and Bruin, Carson to some extent. And so our brief open saying, if you guys are originalists, you should listen to serious originalists. We've got something to tell you. And the court didn't hear from serious originalists in Bush versus Gore and frankly didn't hear from serious originalists even um, seven years ago in the Arizona case. And I should add that the Democrats on the Supreme Court will have it and their law clerks will probably think of pulling out our brief and showing it to their Republican counterparts and saying, you see, these eminent scholars actually think that uh, the case should be decided as we think it should be decided. So even if the six Republican justices and all four of their law clerks somehow don't manage to find out about our briefs, I think that the three Democrats and their law clerks will pick it out and point it out to them, at which point people will read it and make up their mind on the merits. But even if we were to lose this case, it should be noted that it might still be true that the independent state legislature doctrine doesn't apply as to presidential electors, because the language of Article 2 is subtly different from the language of Article 1, I'm sorry, Article 1, Section 4. So Article 2, Section 1, Paragraph 2 reads, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, comma, in other words, it says each state shall appoint. So the reference to state legislatures is even more uh, indirect, and the reference to the states doing the appointing is even more direct. So it, I hope we win more v. Harper. We should win more v. Harper. We're right in more v. Harper. But even if we were somehow to lose it, it would not necessarily resolve the issue as to Article 2. I think uh, Akil has pointed out that... Uh you know, one reason that uh, that that this is really a good test of the court, uh, in the sense that the originalist arguments are the most are among the most powerful arguments here, and uh, if the court indeed is serious about originalism, then you know the decision should be fairly straightforward. It'd be hard to see how it would come there, but you know, you never know, of course. And and on Article Two, just a big big shout out, and the difference between Article Two and Article One. A big shout out to Vic Amar, who saw this point more clearly than anyone else. And when he and I wrote an article a couple of years ago, he said it first to me and I said, no, no, no. And he said, and, he said <laughs> and he knows sometimes not to push me too hard. So then he mentions it a couple of days later. I said, oh, no, 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 no. And then, you know, waits a couple more days. He says, now listen, you know, listen carefully. And he says again, I said, oh. You know, that's a great point. I'm glad I thought of it. (laughs) So so all honor to um, Professor Vic Amar for seeing this with distinctive clarity and pushing, pushing, pushing until his uh, somewhat dense older brother actually saw the light. And of course, that's a paraphrase of Lincoln who says all honor to Jefferson. um, Famously. (laughs) Um, Well, so. You know, you mentioned that. And then, one of by the-, the way, is always complaining to me. He says, you know, when Andy says something, you listen to him. But you know, when I say something, you know, you don't always listen to me. I said, actually, Vic, I also have a two-person role. When two people independently tell me the same thing, I I always listen. But in fact, actually, whenever Andy says it twice. That, that satisfies the two-person rule, and whenever Vic says it twice, well, that I, satisfies the two-person rule. Yeah, I think it's uh, – I think it's – I have to say it, and then you have to take a shower. 
Because you, you tell me that when, when you're in the shower, you think about the things that I said, and then you say, oh, yeah, actually, he's right. But anyway. Um, so me, me and Archimedes, we do our best, our best thinking, you know, with, with warm water. So Steve was pointing out that one of the reasons the brief, you know, might get read is because of the ideological diversity that's represented on the, uh, by the authors. Um, and, you know, I think when I put that together with some of the, of uh, what you've been saying about the founding of the Federalist Society and, and how it's, um, you know, brought in, uh, speakers like in this debate from, from other side, the other side or other, other sides. Uh, it brings me to a question about, you know, the different, where FedSoc is now at law schools. I mean, after all, you know, the lawyers convention is pretty highfalutin, black tie, you know, uh, at 22,000 <laughs> 2, lawyers, you know, et cetera, Supreme Court justices. But the the beginnings of the of the FedSoc are humble, you know, uh, within mm-hmm. the law school, um, and you know now you mentioned you said something in our our last uh, episode with you where you said that there wasn't one conservative voice on the faculty at the Yale Law School now, um, at least in constitutional law, I guess. Well, I, I think Akil is an originalist voice on constitutional law. And uh, if you want to call that a conservative voice, and probably to his call, I don't think of it as being conservative mm-hmm. or liberal. I think it's just what it is: positive, positivist. Um, but um, but uh, it's true that there is um, no one in constitutional law who is a political conservative on the Yale faculty in the way that. Robert Bork used to be, or in the way that Ralph Winter to some degree used to be. And it was clear to me when I took Bork's last seminar uh, at Yale Law School in 1982 or 83 that Yale was never going to hire someone like Bork again for a long time. But I never imagined that in 2022, they still wouldn't have hired anybody of that kind. And, you know, it's an astonishing contrast to Harvard, where the dean, John Manning, clerked for Justice Scalia, and another Scalia clerk, uh, Adrian Vermeule, is prominent on the faculty, although he's a wacky non-originalist, unfortunately. But Harvard has recently set up an Antonin Scalia professorship in law, and they hired a really good young originalist, Steve Sachs, from Duke, uh, to fill that uh, chair. Uh, so Harvard is ahead of Yale on this. And as a Yale graduate and alum, uh, I uh, wish that Yale would correct the situation. And happily, they have visiting at Yale this this fall, Sai Prakash, who's a, uh, the James Monroe Professor of Law at the University of Virginia Law School and a first-rate originalist scholar of uh, presidential power in particular, and a former co-author of mine, and I very much hope that they'll hire Professor Prakash. So, what does it mean for the Fed Sock at Yale to to be to you know be in this uh, environment? Well, I think that um, it's very important for the Fed Sock members at Yale to feel that they have a faculty member, a faculty advisor, who they can go to with all of their problems or questions or with the many ways in which the law school community sometimes inadvertently 
does things that are just irritating or grating to libertarians or conservatives. And um, last year in particular uh, was a bit of a fiasco in terms of that. There were a series of things that happened that went wrong where the Yale Federalist chapter ended up feeling very marginalized and very left on the sidelines. And it ended with an event in uh, the spring where the law school chapter had invited in, was holding a debate where one of the lawyers was from the Alliance uh, for Defending Freedom, uh, which has a policy of discriminating on the basis of LGBTQ status in hiring attorneys. Now, to be clear, I don't approve of that policy. I don't like it, but I would certainly not fail to go to a debate simply because someone was from that uh, from that institution. And I wouldn't do what hundreds of Yale students did, which is they disrupted the debate. They, they shouted as loudly as they could out in the hallway and then of all things, the dean of students herself, Ellen Cosgrove, held the door to the room open and encouraged the students yelling to go into the room where the debate was being held so that nobody could hear what was being said and the debate was actually disrupted. And to the contrary, the job of the dean of students in a situation like that is to tell the students that free exchange of ideas and debate is part of what's expected at Yale Law School, and that they'll be disciplined if they persist in preventing people from engaging in free speech and free debate about ideas. And if they want to protest quietly, they're welcome to do that, but they can't disrupt an event. And I I must say, this year I've been extremely happy at Yale. Akhil and I are co-teaching a class together with 13 sessions, We've now taught 12 of the 13, so there's only one more week to go. And I have to say the atmosphere at Yale is totally different this fall from what it was last spring. Uh, How so? The Dean of Students, Ellen Cosgrove, was fired over the summer. Another person in the Dean of Students office who had uh, behaved offensively has been assigned to other jobs where he doesn't come in contact with students. Uh the law school has brought through Sai Prakash for a look, look over visit, and I think they're seriously considering him. Um, and as I said, I hope they'll make him an offer. The law school has continued to afford the courtesy to me of letting me co-teach with Akil, uh, which is a, our, our course on originalism and the living constitution. And the law school has paid me to do that, uh, paid my full salary to do that, and has made it possible for me to have many conversations and dinners with Federalist students. One of the things I'm doing uh, this year, actually, is uh, uh, I'm uh, working on a, uh, a law review article with one of the students who was ridiculed and made fun of last year, a Native American student named Trent Colbert, who argues that uh, knowledge of democratic practices by Native Americans was uh, imparted to Benjamin Franklin in particular and others and may have had some influence on the framers' thinking in terms of fashioning our constitution. So uh, the, I should also say that 
Dean Gherkin promised me last November that there would be personnel changes in the Dean of Students office. Uh, they didn't happen until the summer. I wish they'd happen sooner. Uh, I wish all of this had happened sooner, but the important thing is that it has happened now. And Dean Gherkin's welcoming remarks to the students uh, this fall were very, very good in tone because she encouraged them to get along with each other, to talk to each other, and to work out disagreements. And she emphasized that we're here to learn from each other, not to fight with each other. On our next episode, we're going to be, uh, we've been invited, Akil and I, to record a podcast live before the Yale chapter of the Federalist Society. So we'll we'll be Great. meeting some of these students. We accepted their invitation, their gracious invitation, and we'll be uh, giving them an opportunity to uh, voice, you know, what, what it's like for them on campus uh, and what the Federalist Society means to them. Um, Great. So, that, so we'll, we'll explore this further. So... Um, I think we're coming to the to the end of the podcast here, but I, I really want to thank Steve. You know, this is uh, this has been really easy for me. It's just you know having a fun conversation with a. It's a lot a of fun. Guy. You're you're asking great questions. Akil's making great comments. I mean, this is you know a fun for a law professor. This is a fun way to spend an evening. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I know our audience appreciate will appreciated the last one and will appreciate this one. So thank you very much, and I hope that. Thank uh, you. Maybe you'll come back again in the future for uh, to revisit those. Maybe after the oral argument in Moore versus Harper, definitely after the result in Moore versus Harper. Yes, yeah. I, I hesitate to call it a post-mortem, so we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Um, right. Post-Harperdom? <laughs> so until then, thank you very okay. much. Okay. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you.